worship ministry. Thank you, the E department. Man, if you don't come back tonight, you're going to miss out. None of you feel very convicted about that, I can tell. But if you don't come back tonight, you're going to miss out. How many of you love to worship the Lord? Let me say that again. Maybe you didn't hear it. How many of you love to worship the Lord? There's a song that I learned a long time ago, and you know, I didn't get to sing on worship team today, so maybe I'll just sing it to you. I love to worship 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 you. That's all the song is. That's all it is. That's the words to it. You can probably sing that this week. Just based on my little bit of training, my little bit of introduction to that song. Uh, I, I have a group that I listen to that sings that song. They go 11 minutes singing that song. 11 minutes. You know what? By the time you get done listening to them, you believe that they love to worship them. I don't know about you, but I like to be encouraged in that fashion. Anyway, we come to Psalm 13. Let me go there. Heavenly Father, this morning as we look at the Word of God, as we see what David wrote, we ask you to deliver what you would have us to learn from the passage. We ask you to do that, not the speaker, not the music. We're asking you to invade the hearts of your people and give them an expression of who you are based upon your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> In September of 1982, my wife Lynn woke me up in the middle of the night. I was in the living room sleeping on the couch. And I was not on the couch for the reasons that you may be thinking. That's, that's happened too, but this was not that occasion. Our two and a half year old daughter, Amanda, had been extremely ill with high fever, and the doctors had determined that she had an ear infection and prescribed antibiotics, and we had one of those. But I was sleeping on the couch so that I could get some sleep because I had to get up at five in the morning. We put Amanda in bed with Lynn, and so I was in the living room sleeping. She woke me up with a trembling voice, and she explained to me that something was wrong with my daughter. When I was in the bedroom, I found Amanda was awake, but something was definitely not right. Her little face was filled with terror as she was trying to escape bugs that were on her everywhere. And as she looked at me and doing that terror look, she said, I want my daddy. I just broke the pulpit. She was hallucinating. After multiple episodes of her hallucinating, we were finally directed to a specialist over in Oakland. And after examining her, the doctor informed her informed us and you know what's incredible <laughs> this is 40 years ago right and I cannot remember I don't remember the doctor's name I don't remember any of that but she told us after examining her that your daughter either has a brain tumor spinal meningitis or viral encephalitis and um after some tests, including a spinal tap, they determined that she um, had encephalitis, viral encephalitis. And um, as you might imagine, um, that was something that was not easy for Lynn and I to go through. We were very young parents. This is our firstborn. And um, that's where the brain the outer lining of the brain swells up and it puts pressure on your brain. If she was an adult, she probably would have went into a coma and died. 
That's what typically happens with viral encephalitis. But because she was little, her, her skull was not set. So it would move. So fortunately, she didn't go into a coma, but the slightest feather touch on your brain that's not supposed to be there, that stimulus will cause you to do some amazingly crazy things. And that's what we experienced with her on multiple occasions. You talk about feeling helpless, feeling despair, feeling alone, feeling forgotten. And the one question that was ringing out in our minds as this doctor described what was wrong with her was, how long? How long will we have to see her be this way? How long before she returns to us as our little daughter without the hallucinations? See, I've just described something that's probably common to most of us in the room. Not my daughter, but there's been something that you've gone through in your life, even as a believer in Jesus Christ. See, we were fully saved and fully believers in Jesus Christ, but we still had to go through this process. Have you ever been there where you say, how long? How long before the ordeal would be over? Most of us have been through that. What about you? I would dare say that maybe you're here this morning, you're in some long-term situation where you're at the end of things. You just cannot figure out, how can I go one more step forward? Where are you, God? You ever done that? I've done it. I did it during that time. I knew where he was. I knew he was present. He was in me. He was in Lynn. Where were you? Where are you during this time? How long will we wait for you to show up? How long before you answer the prayers that we have? Perhaps you're here and you're going through a long-term illness. Perhaps you're watching a loved one go through a long terminal illness. I've done that one too. So have a lot of you. I think of our dear sister Patty Chan with Jackson Chan, a former elder here who's in hospice care. As she's watching her husband leave this life, she must be thinking, how long? But maybe not. That's just my own take on it. Her and Ariel and the rest of the family watching their dad or their husband or their Grandpa, exit this life. How long before he'll be gone? Maybe you face a long-term financial crisis. Maybe you've been having problems with your finances for years and you just can't get out of it. You're working hard at it, but nothing's happening. Or maybe you're dealing with grief from the loss of a loved one. Perhaps you have a child who left this life early maybe by their own hands even. I've dealt with those in this church multiple times. Perhaps you're dealing with an issue in your marriage. Perhaps you're how, maybe your husband's an alcoholic. Maybe your wife's an alcoholic. Maybe you've got an unsaved loved one or someone who's just walked away from the church completely and you can't figure it out. You've been praying for years for that individual and they're still not back. Isn't this a prayer that God would want? That they would return to him? Of course it is. Of course it is. You know the story of my mom praying for my brother for 30 years for him to come back to church, come back to the God who he says he believed in. And my mom left this life without the answer to that prayer. But oh, two years after she was gone, he showed up back there where Cheryl Armstrong was at. And he kept showing up. And today he teaches Sunday school at a little church in Idaho. 
Yeah. Incredible. Maybe there's just dysfunction in your family and you've been praying God to heal it for a long time. Maybe there's issues at work. No, you don't have any issues at work. Only if you work for me here at Valley do you have issues. No, no, no. Maybe you've got an unreasonable boss that you work for. His expectation is always higher than your possible reaching. Or maybe you've just got a spiteful fellow worker that just drives you crazy and you got to go there every day and put up with it. Before you know it, you find yourself in the same position that David is when he writes this song. When he writes this song. Here's David. He's a man of God. He's described as a man of God. He's described as a man after God's own heart. He's the anointed king who's not yet on the throne because Saul is still ruling. Listen, I don't know the context of this psalm. We're not given it. And I, for one, say, thank God we're not given context. You know why? Because you're never going to be a king. You're never going to, hopefully, you're never going to have a king trying to kill you. Hopefully your own son won't try and kill you later in life. So I'm glad that we don't know the context because it still applies to all of us then. It applies to every one of us. If we, if we did know the context and it was one of those, you could say, well, that's never going to happen to me. And you're right, you probably wouldn't. But we do see him in this song crying out, how long? A man of God, a man after God's own heart would question God. How long, O oh Lord? I like to imagine, and it's just an imagination of mine, I would like to think of it as he's running from Saul and he has run from him for a while. You know, he was anointed to be the king 15 years before he ever became the king. In eight or nine of those years, he was a fugitive running from Saul. And I like to think, just in my own perspective, when he was at Ziklag, and him and his men, the faithful men that had followed him, 600 warriors, went out to do a military expedition. And when they returned, what had happened? The enemy had come in and taken their wives, their wives and all their kids. I'd like to think that maybe that's when David wrote this. I don't know that. But imagine if you would. All his men turned on him when they got back. What kind of military strategy was it that you left no one here to protect our kids, to protect our marriage, to protect our wives? Now we're without our wives. And you know who David sought out after that, don't you? Himself. He encouraged himself in the Lord. And there was, no one else was going to do it. Now, I just said I didn't want to give context to this, but I kind of gave context to it. But can you imagine the feeling he must have had at that point? I can just imagine he might have wrote this psalm several times. And he did write this psalm several times. Not this one, but if you look at David's psalms, he'll start out a lot of times just like he does here. With a sigh, with despair. Let's read this psalm. Psalm 13. It's a very short psalm. Let's take a look. How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O oh Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, lest I will sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy will say, I have overcome him, and my adversaries will rejoice when I am shaken. But I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, because he has dealt bountifully with me. We break this short psalm up into three parts. Two verses per each part. 
And we start off with David's condition. And his condition is one of despair. He starts off with, How long, O Lord? How long will I have to wait for an answer to my prayer? How much longer will I have to run from my enemies? You're the God of the universe. You're the God that takes care of everyone. How long? And before you're hard on David, I want you to remember about those conditions we talked about earlier and think, didn't you say the same thing? I certainly did. How long? Have you ever been there? You know, when you ask the question, how long? It implies this. Something's delayed. Something's being delayed when you're asking, how long? How long till the food's ready? How long till we get there? Any of you remember being a child and you're in the back seat of the car and, then, and your dad's driving a windy road and it feels like it's 120 degrees outside and there's no air conditioning? I'm old enough to know that most cars didn't have air conditioning when I was that little. That was a big upgrade to get an air conditioner put in your car. But, and one of the common questions, how long till we get there? How long is it going to be before we get to our destination so I can get out of this blasted car? Because see, I was the youngest of three boys. I sat in the middle with two older brothers on both sides. And it wasn't uncommon for them to decide to Charlie horse me in the leg while we're driving. Or punch me in the ribs. And I would cry out and my parents would say, you be quiet back there. Great. How long, oh Lord, will you for... Listen, when we feel like God is delaying, the number one thing that happens to us, we feel forgotten. Isn't that what David says? How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? Wait, he's a man of God. He knows God can't forget him. But in his circumstance, in the condition that he's in, he feels forgotten. You know that God can't forget you. He can't, he won't. Sometimes when we're going through something, we feel that God has forgotten us. But don't worry, it's a common experience for us. In your flesh, you will automatically go there sometimes. But I am thankful that I'm glad to know that I'm not by myself in that one. I'm not. If you're, if you're a Christian that's never done that, well, praise God for your faith in him. Because I believe everyone has done that before. But he will not forget you. He can't. Let me show you that. Let me just show you that. I don't know if I even have that in my notes. Oh, let me find it. Here it is. Verse 15 of Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49, verse 15. Listen to this. Can a woman forget her nursing child. Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. Behold, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Look at that. Not only will I not forget you, I'm making a guarantee I won't forget you. There's nothing more intimate than a mom nursing a baby to me. The sustaining of that life by being close to mom in the bosom at a breast. There's nothing like that. Such an intimate moment. And he, he compares it to that. Can the nursing mom forget her child that's at the breast? That seems impossible, doesn't it? But even if she could, I won't forget you. I will not forget you. So much so that I will inscribe you on the palms of my hands. 
I'm going to put a tattoo. I'm going to put Larry Howard right there in my palm. If you have something in your palm, it's pretty easy to be reminded of it. But everyone has a point somewhere in their spiritual makeup that marks the limit of their faith. Everyone does. The trial comes on and you begin to give up on God and we start to think that God has given up on us. That's what David's doing. How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? God cannot forget you. He will not forget you. You can be assured of that this morning. The second one in the passage is, how long will you hide your face from me? When God delays, when you hide your face from someone, he's saying there, you've forsaken me. You won't even look on me. You, you've turned your back on me. You've forsaken me. It's another way of saying he doesn't care. Forsaking is very intentional. It is a premeditated forgetfulness. It's on purpose. Have you forsaken me? How long will you hide your face from me? How long will you just turn away and act like I'm no longer existing? That's what he's saying. In Psalm 22, 1, through, 1 and 2, verses 1 and 2, he says this. This is the same author, it's David. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Sound familiar? Sound like familiar words? You so far from helping me and form the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season, and I'm not silent. I'm not silent, but you've forsaken me. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know why it sounds familiar? Because it's the very words that Christ used on the cross when God turned his back on him. He could no longer look at the sin on him. Jesus felt the same emotion when on the earth, clothed in flesh, he actually was forsaken on the cross. You see, David's not really being forsaken here, but Christ really was forsaken. God turned his back on Jesus because he is holy and just God and could not look on the sin that Jesus carried on the cross. Let me tell you something. If you get nothing else out of this message, remember this. Remember this. The next time you feel in that fashion where you're at the end of your faith and you feel like God is forsaken, remember this. The next time you feel forsaken by God, remember this. Jesus hung on the cross and God turned his back on his son so that he would never have to turn his back on us. Everything that you deserved, including the forsaking of the father because of your sin, was paid for at the cross by Jesus Christ. He was forsaken on your behalf by the father so that you would never be forsaken by the father. That should make you want to dance and shout just a little bit. I know we're a conservative church, so we don't dance and shout very much. And I don't dance very much or shout very much myself, but I certainly like to be in the room when it's going on. Third thing that happens when we feel like God delays you see in verse 2, how long shall I take counsel in my own soul? The third thing that happens is we get frustrated. We're frustrated. We're, we're impatient. We want the answer right now. How many of you have prayed for something and, and immediately when you get done, it gets answered? Every time you pray, it immediately gets answered. How, how many of you, that, that, that doesn't happen very often, does it? But it does happen sometimes. I remember a time Man, this isn't even part of my sermon. I remember this time that we were facing a financial debt at the church. We were $70,000 in the red. And Tim Volster was our executive pastor then, and 
Me and Tim and Phil were in a meeting and Tim was bringing this news to us. And we're like, you know what? We don't know what to do about it, but let's pray. Let's ask God to relieve that debt for us. Let's ask God to bring that. Now, we had no idea where that would come from, but we began to pray. While we were praying, doesn't always happen this way. I'm, I'm actually going against myself here. But while we were praying, Ron Hughes joined us. Comes walking in the door, closes the door very quietly behind him, and we continue to pray. We pray for three or four minutes. We get done. Ron goes, hey, he's got something in his hand. He says, uh, you know that $70,000 debt that I just told you about Tim? Yeah. I just opened the mail. And there's a check for $70,000. That's pretty amazing. And we've watched God do that. Not exactly that way, but we watch God meet our needs multiple times here at Battle. But it doesn't always happen like that. You have to persevere in prayer. Remember the little woman in Luke 18 that, that Christ tells the story about her going to the unjust judge? She just kept going to the unjust judge. She kept going back to him. And he kept saying, get away from me. You have no, you have no trial case with me. Get away. And we're reminded of the parallels and the contrasts of she had no right to be before the judge. You have every right to go to the Father. She had no, nothing that he wanted to answer. God is waiting for you to come so he can answer for you. There's all these parallels and these contrasts in that passage. But what I love is at the very end of that, it says this. It says, and Christ says this in that Luke 18 passage. He says, but who will I find that has the kind of faith like the little woman in the story when I return? Will anybody be praying, believing that I can do? Will anybody pray, believing what I can do? But we get frustrated when the answer doesn't come, don't we? When we were going through that with my daughter, I wanted to pray and have her immediately be better. That would have been marvelous. But yet it didn't happen that way. It took some time. So frustrations because of our emotions. When, when we get emotional about things, we don't always do the logical thing. We don't always do the thing that makes the most sense. I've always told people, never make major decisions based on emotions. You have to be rational when you make major decisions. And so I think that when your emotions get carried away, you'll buy something you didn't really want to buy. You ever bought a new car and you never planned on it? Just, we're just going to go in and look. Matter of fact, you probably told your wife or she told you, now we're not buying today, we're just looking. Right? And you go in there and oh, the car smells so good and all of those things and your emotions start to run away with you and pretty soon you're paying whatever they ask. You're not even bartering with them to try and get it down to a reasonable, not whatever they want, we just want the car. Yeah, emotions can be a big part of it. You get frustrated because of your emotions. You're in, the, you're in the trial right now. You're in it right now. You have that financial crisis. You have that long-term illness. You're married to that individual that won't stop sinning or won't accept the Savior the way you have or any of these conditions that we talked about earlier. You're in those currently. And that can be very frustrating. It can be very emotional. It can be very... Uh, Daunting. And what else can you be frustrated in there? Frustrated that your enemies might be exalted over you. Frustrated that your boss at work who treats you unfair is exalted in a position higher than you. Frustrated that coworker that drives you nuts is getting the position above you all of a sudden. You can get frustrated over all kinds of things in that area. And these, these are your so-called enemies. You're supposed to pray and witness to that worker and to that boss but they can be very frustrated at times so what happens in the second point here based on that kind of picture that conditioning 
of looking at where, and, and listen, I hope that right now while you're sitting there, I believe that most of you are thinking either of something that's happened in the past or something that's currently going on in your life that fits this parameter. How long, oh Lord, will I have to wait for this? How long? And you've been frustrated by the emotions that you go through. And you've, you've felt forgotten. You've felt forsaken. It happens. But then, watch what David does. You know what I love? Here, listen to this. This is what I love about David. He's not afraid to ask God how long. Isn't that? God, how long are you going to do this to me? How long do I have to wait for this financial crisis? I'm working my backside off and I can't get out of this. I need your help. How long will you make me wait? Or do you go to God and go, oh Lord, everything's so good. My life is blessed. I had a person here that I talked to one time. I knew about a medical condition in their life and they, it was horrific. That medical condition was horrific. And I went to them and I said, how are you doing? Oh, I'm blessed. I'm like, well, that's true. But on your current condition, how you doing? It's true. We're all blessed because Christ died for us. And we placed our faith in that. And we're in the family of God. We're part of the bride of Christ. That's all true. If you've accepted him, there's wonderful things for you. But it doesn't mean the financial crisis you're in is gone. You still have to deal with that. So what does David do? In desperation, he goes to the Lord. And the prayer that he does, starting here in 3 and 4, when we look at it, is a prayer of desperation. He's now lodged his complaint. How long, O oh Lord, will I have to wait? Have you forgotten me? Did you forsake me? And I'm frustrated as I'll get out with the emotions I have. So we have that part. Now he comes in and he goes, now I'm desperate. I need your help once again, Lord. His condition doesn't change. I want you to remember that during this whole time, this whole prayer, his condition never changes. The situation doesn't automatically go away. So here's what he does. He's going to give a desperation prayer. How many of you... Well, let me... I'll, we'll work on that in a second. Look what he says in three. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes or I will sleep the sleep of death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him. And I put in earlier, I put in the ESV version where I say, Enlighten my eyes lest I will sleep the sleep of death. If you don't show up, Lord, I'm going to die. And my enemy will say, I have overcome, lest my enemy says, I have overcome him and my adversaries will rejoice when I am shaken. All right. Let's not fight that anymore. I hope I don't tear the whole pulpit down here. Sometimes we have to get in a spot, and I'm, I'm so guilty of this. I try and fix everything myself. Everything. I discuss it with my wife, and I discuss it, and I meditate on it, and I chew on it, and all that happens is my emotions get to whirling around even more. And then I come to the realization, hey, maybe I should ask God to help me with this. Any of you ever done that? You run out to fix it all yourself, and you're doing everything you can to make it right, and it just isn't coming together. And then suddenly you realize, hey, I have access to God. My heavenly Father, who says he knows what's best for me. Maybe it's a good idea to include him in this process. Uh, consider, oh, turn your eyes to me, Lord. We, we pray out of desperation, and this is when things get serious about our Lord. When we get desperate enough to pray, that's when we get serious about things. And we get serious about who he is when we say, oh, I need to pray. 
God steers us, I believe he steers us into desperate circumstances. He says that when we're in trials, we're to persevere in a trial. You know what that means? There's going to be trials. Your job is to persevere in that. And what happens when you persevere? Do you remember this in the New Testament? Your character will improve. <laughs> It'll be built. Your character will change. It's going to change who you are when you persevere. Your character increases. And then what happens? Because of that, your faith will increase. You say, well, I only have a certain amount of faith. No, it will increase. When you persevere through a trial, he's promising that when you do that, your character will be built and your faith will increase. And when faith increases, what happens to your hope? It increases. Amazing. Lord, I'm calling on you. I know that I'm in a trial. Would you please at least look at me, acknowledge me? So God steers us into desperate circumstances so that we will go to him in sincere, heartfelt prayer. Do you know the difference between sincere, heartfelt prayer and just throwing up a prayer? Do you know the difference? Have you ever felt that difference? Have you ever prayed in that difference? Of course you have, if you've been around very long at all. You've got to go before him and get low. I love what Spurgeon said, just get on your face before him. Spurgeon said, I want to get so low that I can taste the dust of the earth. I get before him. I'm going to get before him and do a heartfelt prayer. God, I need you to rescue my daughter. She's hallucinating and I don't know what to do. They've accused me of using drugs and she got a hold of them. They said she must have drank paint thinner. They got all these things they said and none of it was true. God, I need you to show up. Let me tell you, when your two and a half year old daughter is threatened in her health, it don't take very much to get you to be serious and get some heartfelt prayers going. When we go through times of trouble, God, ask God how you can become a trusting child when you're in that. Lord, I don't know what to do, but I'm trusting you. I don't have the answer, God, but I know you do. And I know you're not punishing me with this trial. You're trying to build my character. You're trying to give me that perseverance that I need. Oh, Lord, would you let me persevere through this trial? I don't like it. I'm going to tell you straight up, God, I don't like the trial. Matter of fact, I was a foolish young man. Because I said, Lord, if you're trying to get to me, come after me, but leave my daughter alone. Oh, yeah, I was being for real with him at that time. For real. I look back on it, and I'm thankful I'm still alive after making that prayer. When we go through times of trouble, ask God how you can become a more trusting child. How you can, Lord, I want this not to be a lost lesson. I want to get my faith built. I want the more hope. A trusting child who hangs on to the desperation that leads us to a sincere, heartfelt prayer. That should be your prayer life. One that says, I need to be heartfelt before him. Quit lying to God in your prayer life. Quit acting like you're holier than thou. He knows who you are. Tell him how you feel. Tell him how you feel. God, I'm not happy in this. Then I want to look at the form of his prayer, though. When he says, consider... He's saying, look at me. Stop turning your back on me. Stop forsaking me. And then he says, answer me. Hear my request. Hear me. Hear my questions. And then he says, enlighten my eyes. You see that in verse 3. All three of those are there. And he's asking God to do something that he's not able to do. He, God has to respond to this. Consider me. God has to do that. 
But he's certainly asking him for it, isn't he? Answer me when I talk to you, Lord. You ever tell your child that? Boy, you better answer me. I'm talking to you. Now, don't tell your wife that. That's not good. And don't do that to your husband. But he's doing that to God. Lord, I don't see you. I don't feel your presence. I, don't, I think you've forgotten me. He knows he hasn't been forgotten. He knows who God is. But in this circumstance, he feels like he's been forgotten. So he says, consider, look at me, stop, turn, answer me, enlighten my eyes. And I don't think he's saying, I don't think he's saying, enlighten my eyes, let me see where this trial's going. I don't think that's what he's saying. When you're with somebody who's going through heavy trials, heavy trials, listen, when Patty Chan had to make the decision, she's right over there, guys. When she had to make the decision to put Jackson in hospice, leading up to that decision, I could look at Patty's eyes and tell she was struggling. The emotions of making that decision, the whole thing, you can just see it in her eyes. When, when you come up to a brother or a sister, when I've had them in counseling and there's an affair in a relationship, you can look in the eyes of the person that's in that affair and you can see there's no light in their eyes. It's gone dark. The sin is weighing so heavy on them that their eyes have darkened. The trial that you're in is so heavy, your eyes have become darkened. Enlighten my eyes. He's asking the Lord, would you at least let my countenance change? Put the light back into my eyes. Return my eyes to reflect the hope that I have in you. Oh, when you get blue, when you get down, when depression hits, and it will, it's going to happen. I don't know anyone that hasn't been depressed at some point. Unless they're a young child that doesn't understand even what depression is. And you can snap young children out of depression by giving them some ice cream. We can't do that with you. I want to look at the hope that I have in him. It'll bring the light back into your eyes. He has not forgotten you. He has not forsaken you. We're going to see that David figures that out during this prayer. He came there sighing and in turmoil. And now he's starting to generate. He's starting to pray. He's starting to ask God some things. Then look at the focus of the prayer. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him and my adversaries will rejoice him when I'm shaking. But look up there in verse 3. Oh Lord, my God, he says. Oh Lord, my God. I love this because when you look at the Hebrew of that, it says... The, the my Lord is Jehovah. The my God is Elohim. Okay, so here's it. Jehovah reflects God's promises. My Lord. Now, did David have any promises from God? Well, for one, he said he's going to be the anointed king. Now, he starts to think on that, doesn't he? Right here, he starts to think, wait a minute. I can't possibly be killed by my enemies because I'm not the king yet. And God's promised me I'm going to be the king. Right? When will you start living on the promises of God? That's what I'd like to ask you. You know how much better off the church would be if we lived on the promises of God? There's so many. The, the word is so full of promises that we don't even look at or we ignore them when we're in our trial. And then he says, and my God, which he's reflecting on the power of God. So he's saying, Lord, you're the promise keeper. You will keep your promise. You make promises and you keep them. And you have the power to make, you have the power to keep those promises. David reflects on God's promises given him the promise that he would be king sitting on the throne. The God who promises is a God that is powerful to stand behind his promises. That's what I saw in that little, oh Lord my God, that just that little segment. When you take that apart a little bit, you can see it. So that leads us 
You gotta be kidding me, I'm overtime already. Unbelievable. How did that happen? What happens when I don't pay attention to a clock? That takes us to the final segment, we're gonna do it really quickly. Final segment, verses five and six, where he says, now look how he changes. He comes from a sigh, or his countenance is one of despair, and he discusses that with the Lord in honesty. He tells the Lord how he feels about it. Right? Did you see that? And now he goes into this prayer. And now look what happens when he starts praying in earnest and saying to the Lord, consider and answer me. And you're, you're the Lord God. You're the promise maker. And you have the power to keep your promises. Now look what he does. But I have trusted in your Loving kindness. You see the trusted is past tense. I have trusted in your loving kindness. You know what loving kindness is there? It's that hesed love. It's the steadfast love of God. I have trusted in your steadfast love. I can believe that you only want what's best for me because you said that's what you wanted to. I trusted in that. And then he says, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. And listen, there's, there's some different kinds of salvation. There's the one that you place your faith in Jesus Christ and you get salvation. You get saved. Your position gets changed. But when you have trials that come along, God is still your salvation to get you through that trial. So he's saying, I rejoice in my salvation. You know, it's interesting that over here in verse Four, he said, my, in, my adversaries will rejoice when I'm shaken. Interesting. Same word, rejoice there. Exact same word. But I will rejoice in your salvation. Huh. The enemies will rejoice when he's shaken. But guess what? The enemies don't win. But the one that, you, that has salvation for you wins. You can rejoice in the winning team. And he says this. And I, I called this third point. I'm sorry, I didn't read it. Prayer is the bridge from sighing to singing. <sighs> My life is a wreck. Woo! I got a song. What happens in between? Prayer. Prayer. And so he says there, I will sing to the Lord. Why? Because he's failed me multiple times. Because he's forgotten me. Because he's forsaken me. Because, no, 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 no. I will sing to the Lord. I will have a song in my heart toward the Lord. Because he has already dealt bountifully with me. And I think David is saying, I know he'll come through again this time. Let me show you something. Bear with me, I'm almost done. Look what he says in Psalm 40. You do realize that chapter 13 is before 40, right? The number 13 shows up before 40, all right? I'm not positive that that's the case here, but this comes from David and it's in verse chapter 40. His first three verses, look what he says. And you're gonna laugh at this almost when I read it to you. I waited patiently for the Lord. It doesn't sound like he was very patient here in verses 1 and 2. But look what happens. And he inclined to me and heard my cry. That did happen in this. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay. And he set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. And look what happens in verse 3. He put a new song in my mouth. A song of praise to our God. And look what happens when you have a song of praise. Look what happens. Many will see and fear. That's interesting. And will trust in David. Oh, no, no. They'll trust in my Lord. Yahweh. They'll trust in your Lord. When you have a song in your heart, when you have a song, when you turn, when he turns sighing into a song, many will see that and they'll want to say, who's the God you're following? 
Because that's the God I need in my life. David's heart, as we see in a lot of the Psalms, his heart was often more out of tune than his heart. His heart got out of tune quite often. To the point that one of the commentaries that I was reading said that when you look at some of these Psalms that David wrote, when you look at the first half of it and then the second half, you think you've got two different authors. Because he came there in a sigh and leaves there in a song. I'm hoping that this morning, whatever you're going through, whatever you're dealing with, that you will get your heart in tune so that you can sing a song. Because when your heart's out of tune, you can't sing very pretty. It doesn't come out very well. And your song doesn't represent things. Remember this, and then I'll let you go. Sorrow remembered. I don't think it's wrong to remember the sorrows in your life. But sorrow remembered makes present joy sweeter. You see, if everything just went really hunky-dory for you, everything was just, oh, everything's peachy keen, whatever term you want to use. I use hunky-dory because I'm old, and that's what we used to say. Whatever it is that causes you, to, if you were just that way all the time, there would be no sweeter. You would just expect it to always be that way. And guess what? There'd be no growth. There'd be no perseverance. Your character wouldn't be built. Your faith wouldn't increase. And your hope would stay what it is today. My hope is so different than what it was when I was 20. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you this morning that we can go from sighing and in six short verses we can have a song of triumph. As David recalled what you've done for him, um, his condition didn't change, Lord. His condition did not change. But his memory of what you had done had completely changed. His memory of how you're a faithful God with steadfast love, loving kindness, with salvation. And it, you have dealt bountifully with him. Oh, I believe you've dealt bountifully with Valley Bible Church and its people. And we want to say thank you for that. And I pray we would leave here if our condition doesn't change, but I pray we'd still be able to leave here with a song, knowing that you're dealing bountifully with us. In Jesus' name, amen.